If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 14. We'll be at the end of that chapter as we keep going through the book of Romans verse by verse. While I'm thinking of it, I should let you know that next week we're going to take a week away from Romans and go to Ephesians uh, 2 verses 8 through 10. Just doing that as uh, kind of a celebration of Reformation Day. So uh, next week will be 506 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and, and uh, we're going to uh, go to Ephesians next week. But today we're in Romans 14, verses 21 through 23. If you are looking in the Black Pew Bible on the end of each pew, it's on page 949. If you don't have a Bible for yourself, then please just take that one with you. It's our gift to you. Let's read together from Romans 14. I'm going to start actually back at verse 17, uh, but 21 is where our sermon will start today. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good, this is where we're starting today, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever, ha- whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We have here today just the beauty of faith. Both believing in Jesus Christ for our salvation, but also of walking by faith. And what that looks like is we walk by faith in freedom in Christ. There are still a couple of places in the parsonage where we have baby gates up, even though we really don't need them anymore. Part of that is because we're still certified as an open foster home, even though we just have kids here and there uh, doing respite care. But, but part of that's just because we just still have them up. And... Uh, when they were functional, when we were really using those gates, what they did is they made sure that kids who didn't know how to behave themselves were contained so that they wouldn't run out and destroy themselves or all kinds of other stuff. But as kids get older, they're able to handle a little bit more freedom where you're able to say, okay, I guess they can open the gate themselves now. I'm a little nervous, but we'll see what's going on. But get eventually to where you say, oh, you know, he's all over the house, and it's okay because he's not going to destroy himself. That's something like the way that the Bible presents the old ceremonial and civil regulations of the law of Moses and how God has now removed them now that Christ has come, now that the gospel has become fully clear in Christ. It says this in Galatians 3, verses 24 through 26. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Or you might say the law was our baby gate until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Just like opening up the baby gate, though, doesn't mean that we're okay with kids running around and punching each other. 
The fact that we have this freedom in Christ and that we're no longer under the the old covenant ceremonial regulations that doesn't give us a license to go and commit evil, to act against God's moral law, and the kind of evil that's being spoken against here in Romans 14 is the evil of failing to love one another, of practicing that freedom in such a way that would be destructive and unloving toward our brother and sister in Christ in particular. This is addressed a little bit in a kind of a more general sense in 1 Peter 2, verse 16, where it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So one thing we know that is evil is if you're going to stick your foot out when somebody's walking by so that you can trip them, make them fall on the ground, and bleed. And he's saying, okay, you live in a free country, but you're not free to do that. You live freely in Christ, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to trip other people up. What we're to do is we're to live by faith, and as we live by faith, to carry out that faith with love. So it says in verse 21, first of all, that we need to to live out this faith with love. It says, it is good not to eat meat, or to drink wine, or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's interesting there that it says it is, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine. In a certain way, another, another place where Paul addresses this to, to another church, the church in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if it makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is so determined to love his brothers and sisters in Christ that he's actually willing to be a vegetarian for them. I can't imagine that. (laughs) Fortunately, I've never been in that position where I have to decide between meat and loving my brother. But he says, you know what? I would abstain from all of it. I would go on the Daniel diet. I would do all this stuff if that's what it took to love my brother and not make my brother stumble. It's interesting that it says that it's good not to eat meat because he, the Bible actually says that now that God has declared all foods clean in Christ, it is good to eat meat. Let me, let me take you to some scriptures that say this. In Acts 10.15, Jesus says, or maybe it's the angel on behalf of Jesus, but it says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And he's talking about these meats, these unclean animals under the old covenant that that Jesus is saying you can rise and kill and eat Peter. 1 Timothy 4:4 4, 4 is another place where where it's talking about how God has made all foods clean in Christ and it says for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So on the one hand God has said it is good now that Christ has come it is good to eat your bacon and to give thanks for it before you eat your bacon. But on the other hand, this verse, Romans 14, 21, says it is good, not just okay, but positively good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The circumstance that he's describing is that it is much better to abstain from doing something that you're free to do if that's what it takes to love your brother and sister in Christ. 
Now, many of our, our hearts would say, well, you know what? If my brother is not okay with doing what I'm free to do, that's his problem. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it in his face. He's going to have to get over it. Jesus said I can have this, so that's his problem. Well, you know what this says? It is actually good to put love for your brother or sister in Christ over your own freedoms, over the rights that you legitimately have. This is saying that it's good to forfeit our personal rights and liberties out of love for our brother. Now, do you know somebody who did this? His name is Jesus. And in fact, if Jesus hadn't forfeited his personal rights and liberties out of love for others, we would all be doomed. Because he is God. But he did not count that equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, but instead he humbled himself and came here to be a servant to us, to pour himself out, to go all the way to the point of death on a cross, which he didn't deserve. He had the right to remain in heaven. And yet he laid that aside out of love for us. And this is saying, boy, what a small thing it is if we just say, eh, I don't have to have that meat today. I don't have to have it today. He's saying that acting in love is more important than claiming your personal rights. Now, I have to be careful here because when we hear the word rights and liberties, as Americans, where our, our minds start to go is the Constitution and government policies, and I just want to clarify that I am not talking here about government policies. I'm talking about here about your, your personal regard for your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are those who would twist things like this into trying to say, oh, well, because the Bible teaches that it's good to lay down your rights, therefore we should just wear down the First Amendment, just wear down our right to free exercise of religion, lay it down out of love, lay down our right to free speech out of love, all of these things. That's actually not loving, because the more those things kind of get worn down, the more the entire society is susceptible to give in to things like persecution of Baptists. Okay? So, so, so we're, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about government policies. I think it is fantastically good to stand up for our right to the free exercise of religion, to freedom of speech, all of those kinds of things. But it's a different thing when we're talking about our personal interactions, our personal relationships. That's what it's getting at. We, we, we can be very, very tempted in our personal lives to come up to another person and say, you know what, I'm going to look out for number one. And however I look out for number one, if you can't handle that, it's your problem, you weakling. But this says, hey, don't stick your foot out and trip your brother. Be willing to say, out of love for you, brother, out of love for you, sister, I am going to hold back from what I can rightfully do, even as the Bible says I can do it in Christ. Now, here's the question, because it says it is good not to, not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. Do you have a right to eat all kinds of food in Christ? Yes. But... If going crazy on the bacon at the breakfast buffet is going to make your brother in Christ sin because he's not quite sure that that's okay, then love for your brother is better than bacon. Anytime we're talking about clean foods, I just can't help but to talk about bacon. I apologize. <laughs> 
Do you have a right, scripturally, to take that sip of wine? Yes, but if it's going to tempt your sister in Christ to sin, then love for your sister is far better. Do you have a right to do lots of other things? Because it says not just eat meat or drink wine, but it says any other thing that may cause your brother to stumble. Do you have rights to do lots of things in Christ? Is the baby gate open? Are you free to live out your faith within the bounds of God's moral law and no longer just within the bounds of these civil regulations and ceremonial regulations? Yes, you're free in all kinds of ways, but love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is better than all of those things. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I've been saying, ever since we got to Romans 14, I've been saying that we're going to talk specifically about the issue of alcohol at the end of Romans 14, and so we're going to do that, okay? Because this is where it brings it up. This is where it says wine. There are some people who read all of Romans 14, and the only thing they think about all the way through is the alcohol issue, but, but this is where it brings it up. Now, when it says it is good not to drink wine, it implies there that there are those in the Roman church and maybe other churches throughout the Christian world who, who were being caused to stumble by this wine drinking. And why would that have been? Well, one of the reasons is the same kind of pagan connections that would have been there for meat eating. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago what those pagan connections for meat eating would have been like, you know, where you're going through the, the meat market and you're picking out a nice steak And it could be that you just don't know where it came from, and there might even be a sign hanging over that steak that said, this is an extra special steak, because when we slaughtered this animal, we offered it at the temple of Zeus. Now, the Bible says pretty clearly, if there's something explicit like that, where somebody is saying, hey, come and partake of this thing out of honor of my pagan god, then don't do that. That's why eating meat sacrificed to idol is spoken against so often in the New Testament. It's because we don't want to participate in the table of demons. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10. But there were those who would say, well, if there's the possibility, if there's the remote possibility that I might accidentally get a hold of a piece of meat where the animal was slaughtered out of honor to a pagan god, then I think that what I need to do is just not eat meat at all out of honor for God. And the same thing was happening with wine as well. Because wine was also used in those kinds of pagan ceremonies. You might have heard of the Roman wine god, Bacchus. And you might have heard of the drunken festivals that were associated with worshiping him and with all of the immorality that came from them. And you can imagine that it would have been a hard thing for some of the Roman Christians to get past those kinds of connections when they smelled wine. And maybe the feeling that if I drink this, I'm participating in Bacchus worship or something like that. But it's not just the pagan connections either. Because the same kinds of uneasiness with alcohol that are had today have always been had throughout all ages. Alcohol is a substance that is easy to misuse. It's a substance that's easy to get addicted to. It's a substance that's easy to destroy your reputation with. It's a substance that's easy to destroy a life with. It's a substance that's easy to destroy a family with. And so it's understandable that there have been people in every point of history, who felt that the only God-honoring position on alcohol is total abstinence from alcohol. And in fact, that was the position of this church 
in its earliest years. But the Bible's pretty clear, too, that Jesus turned water into wine. And when he turned that water into wine, it was actual wine, and the people at the wedding that, at Cana praised what great quality wine it was. And so if we were to have the position that you can't be a member of a Christian church unless you completely abstain, well, then Jesus wouldn't be allowed to be a member of the church. So we understand that there's dangers. We understand that the Bible consistently, over and over and over, preaches against drunkenness as sin. And yet, at the same time, there seems to obviously be freedom in this issue, or else our Savior would be a sinner. One of the ways that I think you can think about it is that alcohol is kind of like fire. You, you can't make a blanket statement that nobody should light a fire in their house. But having a wood fire in your fireplace is not the same thing as having a grease fire in your kitchen. Lighting a candle by your bubble bath is not the same thing as lighting a candle under your Christmas tree. And the kind of wine drinking that the Bible describes as good is not the same as the drunkenness that the sinful world around us raves about and craves and talks all week about how they can't get can't wait to get to that Friday night because of it. Proverbs 21, or excuse me, Proverbs 20 verse 1 warns us about this. It says, "Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise." Proverbs 23 verse 29 goes on about this. It says, "Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises?" Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, which means when it is not watered down, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. One thing just to know for clarity's sake is that it's, there, there are very consistent and reliable historical documents that show us that most likely the kind of wine that Jesus would have been drinking in his context as a Jew in Jerusalem in the first century AD, it, it would have been watered down. Probably something like one-third of it would have been what we call wine today, and about two-thirds would have been water mixed in with it. Now, is that something that's actually alcoholic? Yes. Is it something you can actually get drunk with? Yes, but you'd have to work at it. So that's, that's something to know, and there are warnings all over Scripture about how we're not to gaze at this, how we're not to indulge in what's called strong drink, that there has to be a caution about it. But at the same time, Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine. Why? For the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He's saying, look, that, that alcohol is going to kill some stuff in your belly that you need killed. It's going to help you out a little bit. Now, by God's grace, we don't have to rely on that very much anymore. All I want to say here, though, is if, if you have a tendency in the way that you look at alcohol to say, oh, well, all of those legalists, all of those years have just had the, the most ridiculous view of alcohol, just saying, well, you can't have any, and obviously Jesus drank alcohol, and so, so we're going to go to the bar and, 
and, and just live it up, ordering all that we can while we talk theology. Yeah, no. So obviously, we've we got to avoid drunkenness, but another thing that the Bible is teaching us here is that we've got to avoid not just drunkenness, but causing our brother to stumble. I've heard this statistic. It's something like one out of seven people who ever try alcohol are going to get addicted to it. That's just a thing to keep in mind as you wonder who's, who's around as I'm partaking. Who's been through this? Who might I not know is still going to meetings every week after 20 years? We've got to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says here, it is better. This is, again, this is not a legalistic rule that you can never have a glass of wine with your dinner. That's not what I'm saying. But this is a thing to keep in mind. If it's something that's going to cause your brother or sister to sin, then it's better to lay aside your right. And I'd also say this you might not be as strong as you think you are. Keep that in mind. The next thing it says in verse 22 is that as we're, we're living out this faith, as we're seeking to walk by faith in the freedom that God has given us, we are not to proudly flaunt that faith. He says in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now he's not saying keep things hidden in darkness in your life. So we've got to clarify that. The Bible's really clear about that. In John 3, Jesus says that, that it's those who come into the light who are believers in Christ, so, so that our deeds can be shown to be carried out in righteousness. It says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when he says, keep the faith that you have between yourself and God, he's not giving you permission here to have hidden corners of your life where you're going to dwell in the darkness, where you have things that really you're ashamed of, but you would just use a verse like this to say, oh, I have faith to do that. But nobody has to know that's not what we're talking about. That's something you need to repent of. What it is saying, though, is that even as we walk in the light, even as we're not shamefully hiding anything, that we don't have to proudly flaunt all of the freedoms that we have in Christ. We don't have to proudly flaunt what it is that we feel free to eat and to drink and to do otherwise. He's saying that we're not to be prideful toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're, 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 we're not to come up to our brother in Christ who is convinced that he cannot possibly ever take a sip and say to him what's wrong with you just take it you're free in Christ that would be incredibly harmful to that brother so don't try to win your brother over to doing what his conscience will not allow him to do the next thing we see is that faith needs to be lived out with a clear conscience Related to that, it says in verse 22, the second half, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. My summary of that is just blessed is the one who's able to live before Christ with a clear conscience. Oh, what a blessing that is. It is a blessing. It says this in 1 John 3, 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I'm curious. I guess not curious like where I want you to call it out. 
But maybe you should ask yourself this. Do I have something in my life that I'm trying to make excuses for why it's okay when actually my conscience is bothered before God? That's not kind to your brother and sister in Christ. It's not honoring to God. Those are things that you should repent of. And what a blessing it would be to be able to say the same thing that Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He's saying, hey, this is worth taking pains over. Where maybe you have a reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve. He's saying, take care of that. Take care of that. Now, on the other hand, you may be somebody who says to yourself, everybody's always judging me, but I've got a clear conscience. Well, you should just know that your feeling of a clear conscience doesn't necessarily make you right. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's why even though we want to operate with a clear conscience before God, our conscience can't be the ultimate standard of what's right and wrong for us. The Bible, the Word of God, where he reveals his righteous standard, that needs to be what corrects our conscience. We need to be in the Scriptures so that we can walk with confidence before God. But on the other hand, the, the alternative to having a clear conscience and to having the blessing of a clear conscience is this, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. I'm saying, if you're saying, if you were there in, in Rome in the first century AD and you're, you were just not quite sure whether you can actually take that piece of meat from the meat market out of honor of Christ, but you, you do it anyway just because you saw some other Christians do it and you think, well, this, this is more convenient than trying to put together vegetable stew tonight or whatever it is. And, and you say to yourself, I, I don't know if I can do this out of honor for Christ, but it's, I'm, I'm just going to do it. He says, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. Now, he doesn't mean somebody's going to lose their salvation because they ate the wrong meat. It's not talking about the kind of condemnation that would be eternal condemnation, the fires of hell for all eternity. That's not what he means in this verse, although sometimes the word condemned is used that way in the scriptures. What he means here is that it's sin. He's saying that if you're doing something that your conscience is not clear about, that is sin. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats committing sin for which Christ had to die, that's something to repent of. Why is it that that would be sin, even if those things are allowable technically? Well, it's because of this, verse 23, second part. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want to hang on this for a little bit here. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's think about this first of all for what this means for Christians. And we'll think about this after that for what it means for those who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. For a Christian, and by a Christian I mean somebody who has been born again by the Spirit, who has faith in Jesus Christ, which is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation. 
as we are trusting in Christ for our salvation, we also need to walk by faith. And if we don't have a clear conscience about what we're doing, it is sin to do it. We have to remember that even though we're new creatures in Christ, we have been recreated, we're part of the new creation, we're still here in what Romans 7 calls this body of death. We still have, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we still have sin that dwells within us, according to Romans 7, indwelling sin. And so we have to be watchful. We have to watch out for the things that would come after us to try to seek to destroy us or to drag us down into sin. And one of the ways that we have to be watchful is even watching against our own flesh and even watching against our own hearts as we're still here with indwelling sin. One of the tactics of our indwelling sin in our flesh is to tempt us to go against our consciences to justify something that we don't actually believe is honoring to God and to do it because we can come up with some kind of a rational explanation for why we're free to do it. But this says, according to Romans 14, 23, that even if our rational explanation is right, that if we're acting against our conscience, we're not acting in faith, and whatever is not done in faith, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Some examples of this. It's, I, I mentioned when we first got to Romans 14, some various kinds of Romans 14 issues. And it's one of those controversial things within Christianity to even figure out which issues belong in the category of Romans 14, who is the weak and who is the strong in various situations. But I'll just mention a few that I, I mentioned there. There's no scripture. It's true that there's no rule in scripture that a parent can't have their kids put on a costume and go to ask their neighbors for candy. There's no rule in Scripture about that, but if your conscience is bothered about it because of the way that the world treats October 31st, then it would be sin to go trick-or-treating, going against your conscience, not acting in faith. It's true that there's no rule in Scripture that you can't do athletic, stretchy poses But if your conscience is bothered about those kinds of athletic movements because of the the way that they had connections to pagan Hindu practices of yoga, then it would be sin for you to do those stretchy poses, not proceeding from faith, going against your conscience. It's true that there is no rule in Scripture that you can never have a sip of alcohol. But if your conscience is bothered about it because of all the lives and the families that have been torn apart by drunkenness, then it would be sin to have a glass of wine with dinner. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now for unbelievers, what does this mean when it says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin? If somebody does not have faith in Christ, well, what does this mean? It means that everything is sin. I'm going to say that very clearly. I want you to take this literally. For someone who does not trust in Christ, everything they do is sin. That's what this verse says. We have to clarify, what do we mean by faith? Because some people say, oh yeah, I have faith because I pray all the time. That's not faith. That's an attempt to appease the God by doing the thing that you think the God wants you to do. That's not faith. 
Some would say, well, I have faith because I trust that God is going to get me through the hard things in life. Well, that, that's not a bad thing, but that's not faith. That's more like a, using God like a rabbit's foot. What faith is, it's, it is knowing that Jesus is both God and man, that we are sinners before God, but that Jesus has come to live the perfect righteous life in our place that we couldn't live, to die the perfect death sacrifice for us because the wages of sin is death and we deserve to go to hell forever for our sins, and to receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, as our greatest treasure for all eternity. As it says in, in the Baptist Catechism, it's printed in your bulletin today, faith in Jesus Christ, here's what faith is, saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation. That's what faith is. Apart from faith in Jesus, everything that is done in this life is an act of obedience to the enemy. It is an act of being an undercover agent against God. It says in Hebrews 11.6, part of what we prayed from earlier, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You may think to yourself, well, I don't have to be a Christian to please God. Surely God has made many ways up the mountain, and he just wants us all to be good people. Oh, mistaken about that. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You may say to yourself, well, surely somebody like Gandhi is going to be in heaven because of all of the good deeds that he did. Well, the Bible says right here, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What do we do with the fact that, that sometimes believers do good deeds? And this says everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, we have to know, according to Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You can't just come to God and say, here I have these perfect, pure, righteous deeds, and so therefore overlook my sin. The sin has polluted it all. The sin is, is the sewage that cannot be removed from all of the rest of what we would try to present to God as a clean garment. It's just simply not possible except in one way. For us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior... The reason that we can actually, truly please God, even with our imperfect, polluted works, is because Jesus is the perfect cleansing sacrifice for our sins. That's why it says in 1 Peter 2, 5, that we are able to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Not because we got it right enough did a good enough job, but through Jesus Christ. We can trust in Christ and know that he is, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, so that what we do can actually please God. 
if, a, if an unbeliever does good works, we're not going to stop them. Anything that is accomplished that's positive in this world from an unbeliever is something that they don't realize is actually being done by God. They don't know it. But the fact that they do those things without acknowledging God, who is the only source of all good, it makes every outward act of good an inward act of evil in their hearts. If you do good deeds without faith in the good God, you're acting as a double agent for the enemy. No matter how hard Robert Hansen worked at FBI headquarters for the decades that he was there, after it was exposed that he was a Russian double agent, not one hour of his career is going to be remembered as good work. No matter how many good things an unbeliever may accomplish in this world, after the day of judgment, when it was exposed that all of those works were carried out not in faith but against the good God, not one of those good deeds after that day of judgment will be remembered as good. In fact, there are some people even who do religious deeds without faith. Jesus said that this is the case. He says that on the day of judgment, there are going to be people who come before him claiming that the reason that they ought to have eternal life, that they ought to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven, is because I did many mighty works in your name. I drove out demons in your name. I, 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 look at me. Rather than by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Not thanks for all the good deeds. He says that on that day of judgment when he separates the sheep from the goats, it's those who are on their way to heaven, the sheep who are flabbergasted at the idea that Jesus would say that when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. They said, when did we ever do that? On the other hand, it's the goats, those who are going out to eternal condemnation, who are pictured at the day of judgment in Matthew 25 as saying to Jesus, when did we ever not do those things? When did we ever not feed you when you were hungry? When did we ever not visit you when you were in prison? Don't you know that we are good people who did good deeds and you ought to let us in there, you Jesus, that we hate? Here's the reality. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You cannot clean yourself up from that. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Maybe you've lived your entire life up to this point knowing that you are not operating in faith. Spinning out of control, destroying yourself in sin. God is gracious to sinners who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Come to Him. He will clean you. He will forgive you. He will accept you. He will save you. Maybe you've lived your entire life up to this point as a good person, doing good things, maybe even coming to church a lot, and yet without faith in Jesus Christ. With all kinds of faith in yourself and in your goodness, 
all kinds of faith in your religiosity, all kinds of things that you have been planning on piling up on a big list to be able to say to God on the day of judgment, here's all my fruit, rather than knowing that it is alone the blood of Jesus that can let us in and give us eternal life. If that's the case, you don't have faith, and no matter how many good deeds you've done, you've been operating as an agent of the enemy, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, and at the day of judgment it will not stand. Turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and he will accept you. And once accepted, well, then we can walk by faith, as it's been saying in this passage. Walk in freedom and walk by faith, but you need to have the faith first and foremost. John 3 tells of somebody, this was in our Sunday school lesson this morning. If you don't come to Sunday school, then shame on you. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You know what that means? Lots and lots of people would have seen him as a good person doing good things. Somebody to consult, what is the best thing that I can do for God in this situation? That's, that's the kind of guy we're talking about. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, he has all kinds of respect for Jesus even. But Jesus answered him. Jesus didn't say to him, Wow, it's great that you're so religious and so good and that you know that I came from God and you call me Rabbi. Wow! Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another way to put that is whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Turn, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus, our great, perfect, righteous Savior, who is able to cleanse us from all of the filthiness of our deeds. Lord, I thank you that as we trust in Jesus, that he cleanses us from all of this unrighteousness, accepts us. Lord, makes it possible for us, even as people who still have indwelling sin, who still need to be forgiven on a daily basis, makes it so that we can actually please you and actually walk by faith and actually walk with a clear conscience. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that as believers in Jesus Christ. Father, I especially pray that if there are ways that we have been tripping each other up in our faith, leading people to do what they ought not to do according to their conscience, Lord, just sticking our foot out and, and making them bleed, I pray that you'd forgive us and I pray that you'd restore those relationships and I pray that you'd help us to love one another more than we love our own rights. God, I especially pray for those who don't have faith. I pray that you would show them that reality. Maybe even they've said that they have faith, but it's in faith in something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would convict them that their entire lives up to this point have been sin. Lord, convince them that they're wrong. Grant them that repentance to turn from their dead works, and to trust in the living Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.